We choose to go to the moon because it is there. Well, space is there. And we're going to climb it. And the moon and the planets are there. And new hopes for knowledge and peace are there. And therefore, as we set sail on the greatest adventure on which man has ever embarked. All right. Welcome to the new Space Vision Podcast. In this podcast series, we aim to tell the stories behind the emerging new space ecosystem in Germany, Europe and the world. You can find previous and future podcasts on our iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud channels. Simply search for New Space Vision. New exciting interviews, blogs, meetup events, conferences, the newsletter or other projects can be found on our website newspacevision.com. So make sure to subscribe. Hello, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to our next episode of the New Space Vision podcast. Today, with a very special guest, and I'm personally especially happy that this recording is taking place because I always was fascinated by space technology and I wanted to work in the space industry from an early age. And so when I started my university career, I joined PT Scientists, and PT Scientists was a competitor in the Google Lunar X Prize. And one of my tasks at PT Scientists was to observe our other competitors in this competition. The competition was to launch um, the first private mission to the moon and then also to get to the moon. One of the competing organizations and teams was Space IL. Today, we're here with one of the founders of Space IL, Jonathan Weintraub. Space IL was founded in 2011 as the Israeli contributor to the Google Lunar X Prize. Today, you're going to learn a whole lot of things about A, the mission, B, the lender, and how you really come up with such a such a great idea and such a great success because what I can already say is that Space IL has achieved incredible things such as sending a mission to the moon. First of all, thank you for joining us. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about yourself, what your background is and what you're currently doing. So uh, thank you. Yeah, I'm uh, really glad to be here on your podcast. Uh, my background um, started from a very early age. I was very interested in robotics and building robots. Did this uh, Lego robots was my thing. So uh, sending a mission to outer space was the ultimate challenge. I was working as aerospace engineer at the Israeli Aerospace Industries, IAI, and I was uh, doing an internship for a summer uh, at the International Space University at NASA Ames. So I was all about uh, getting to space And when I was at NASA, I learned about this uh, Google Lunar X Prize, which sounded like a really cool competition to get a robotic mission to the surface of the moon. And I decided that I want to do this. I want to be part of that. And so I started making the designs. And uh, I was, uh, I think, 23 at the time. So I made the designs and I made the sketches and went back to Israel and tried to get people interested in it, especially in my um, IAI, which is, again, the people that actually make satellites. You know, as I was shopping around trying to figure out uh, who can uh, do this and are people interested, I figured out that there was very little interest. So I kind of put my, my uh, plans in the drawer and kind of forgot it a little bit until one day a mutual friend of mine said, you know, I have some people to, to introduce you to. You guys are crazy. You should meet each other. We kind of uh, got together, sat down in a bar, and I think it was uh, uh, Yariv that said, uh, did you guys learn about the Google Lunar X Prize? And I said, yeah, of course I know. I know about it. I want to do this. Let, let's, let's do that. 
and uh, you know, as the night uh, evolved and we were drinking a little more, it became more and more reasonable, and it made more sense that we should actually do this. And I think he kind of uh, registered the, the domain, and we basically this is this is how Space Sail started. Every trader and myself, three engineers, uh, walk into a bar, come up with a spaceship program. One of the first things we did was to try to gather support for for this mission. Uh, we went to again to IAI, to the Israeli Space Agency, and to my surprise, they were pretty positive about the idea. I mean, they told us they might not work. At the time we were thinking about extending something like it's a CubeSat, so about uh, Coca-Cola bottle-sized satellites to the surface of the moon. Uh, we were kind of showing this off and trying to trying to gather support in Israel. And the head of the Israeli Space Agency, uh, Isaac Ben Israel, said, "You know, you know, guys, uh, we have a conference here. You should." Come and speak in the conference. Uh, some interesting things might come up, and uh, we went on stage. Uh, it was seven minutes. It's still on YouTube, so you can see it. We went on stage. We practiced it all night, and uh, we get get our seven minutes on, on the stage. We come down. This guy approaches us and says, uh, "Do you have any money?" <laughs> and I uh, look at uh, at my partner, Jeremy Fear. We look at each other. Uh, we just got started. I didn't own a car at the time, so we said, "You know, we 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 just started. It's uh, we had we don't have it uh, fully." And he said, "Come to my office. I'll give you a hundred thousand dollars." That uh, that was uh, Morris Khan, which uh, you know he was the main the main person actually backing this mission eventually, and. Uh, it was a uh, forty-something million down when we finished the mission, so that was uh, for sure a really uh, great uh, step forward to to getting this uh, this mission off the ground. We obviously got a lot of support from really high-tech companies and a lot of organizations. Uh, you know, a spaceship is not something you can build in your backyard. Unfortunately, you have to have the people with the expertise and the, the support. And uh, we set it up uh, and to gather all the resources to do that. An important part of the mission from the very beginning was not to just get to the moon, but also to use it as a source for inspiration for kids. Um, in Israel, and I'm sure in Germany and around the world, we have the same problem. Of kids don't really want to be uh, scientists and engineers. They much, much better be celebrities uh, on, on TV. And, you know, I watch The Real Housewives. I enjoy it. That's great. But we also need engineers. Um, and one of the things that we thought is that when kids would look at that mission, they would think that when, when they grow up, they can actually go to the moon themselves if they study in science and engineering. And that was a big, big uh, part of that mission is to touch the hearts and minds of those children to kind of say, you know, science is hard, but if you actually are willing to participate, you can get to the moon. And it doesn't really matter uh, if they want to build a spaceship or they want to cure cancer or solve global warming or any of the other problems, the big problems that we have. Uh, this generation is the generation that has the most tools available to them. They have things that previous generations could only dream about, and they just need to reach out and grab it. And we wanted to encourage them. So a big part of Space AL, and this is my, my partner's Kfir's uh, main, main job, was to kind of go and, and reach the masses and, and teach them about space and engineering and how, how cool is that. And Space AL to this day reached over 1 million children uh, where we were able to get to, to give a, a talk there or, or to uh, reach with an activity. And there is a big volunteering team. So this is all volunteers that go out and talk to schools, school door to door, Amazing people, by the way, very excited about this. Um, and the kids actually can talk to someone that actually uh, build a spaceship. So these these people are the ones that actually build a spaceship and they, they get to talk uh, to kids as well. 
new new space vision want to share that you can do something uh, really ambitious you can do something even in the space industry and i think you are the perfect role model for this what i also think is super interesting that you just for a space mission got 100k as an initial funding we are also always uh, telling uh, people also from the government that um, those uh, numbers they are not high for them but they really make a difference in the very early days right so what did you do with those first 100,000 euros um, and did you already build an initial design um, of the lander for that? Yeah, so uh, we set up Space Rail as a nonprofit. So that was one of the decisions that we made early on is to set it as a nonprofit to promote science and education for science. To that end, uh, we basically started recruiting volunteers. So the people that actually build the spaceship in the beginning were and made the initial designs were a team of volunteers that, uh, you know, in their day job, they're, uh, you know, computer scientists or programmers in Google or Facebook or any of that company. But at night, they <laughs> build a rocket ship to the moon. So the money that we used initially was to kind of to gather the support for a volunteering team. And we had a very big team of, uh, I think it, it peaked at the hungry people, uh, volunteers that worked uh, at nights and, and made the designs, the calculations that were needed for that mission. As the mission evolved, uh, we shifted from that volunteering base to more of a professional team that this was their job. But I can tell you that without the volunteers in the beginning, we would not have learned so much uh, in the early days. We moved to to professional team and, and that funds also helped uh, get, get those designs. Uh, as you know, spaceship is something that you build uh, uh, not uh, at the first try. There's a Russian saying that says you need to measure seven times and cut once. So the way that you do this is you build, a, a, you, you make some sort of a spiral design. You start with a very coarse order of magnitude design, and then you're trying to see, to balance the different subsystems. As you move along, you refine your designs and you're doing your preliminary design review or then a critical design review. And every iteration that you do, the designs become much more concrete. I can give you an example. So aerospace engineering is very convoluted. So let's say you have an algorithm that you want to see the landing site and you want to compute uh, the distance to the landing site using a camera. So this is a simple algorithm. The problem is that if you want to make uh, the algorithm slightly better, you need slightly bigger computer, which normally is not a problem here on Earth. The problem is it becomes in space. If you want a bigger computer, then it dissipates more heat. And because space doesn't have air, then you need somehow to radiate that heat. Then you need uh, to have radiator. You need to have the structure to support that radiator. You need the power to support that radiator. It means the battery is bigger. Really quickly, there's an avalanche effect. So a very minor change, like changing the algorithm, cascades really quickly to you need a bigger satellite or you need a bigger battery or you need a, a bigger launcher. And that is a big problem in space. And this is why you do it in spirals, because you want to make sure that you have the roughly the right numbers to begin with as you iterate. And on top of that, there's obviously the, the problem with the rocket equation is that it's exponential. So if you need one more kilogram of hardware sitting on the surface of the moon, you actually need to carry the fuel to put that one kilogram on the surface of the moon. So you actually end up adding four kilograms to the mission, and then you need the structure to support that four kilograms in, in the launch. So it really cascades really quickly. So that, that's the main problem in, in building a space mission. And this is why it's so important to make the designs in a spiral. So you start with the very coarse, and then you refine it as you go. And one of the problems that we discovered is that uh, you cannot get to the moon with a Coca-Cola bottle. It's uh, it's uh, it's way too small. We needed to have more fuel, um, so that we had actually in space we underwent multiple design reviews uh, where we actually increased the size of the mission um, to to make it fit, and eventually it did. 
Um, you know, it's true that we got to the moon in too many pieces. So, uh, you know, the challenge was to get in one piece, not in too many pieces. But I quote a friend of mine that said, uh, if you crashed a party, you still had a good time. Uh, and uh, that's what we did. <laughs> that sounds good. And uh, one thing which, which I'm also super interested in for the very early days, uh, what was your plan? When did you want to land on the moon? Getting to the surface of the moon is so hard that I think at that point we were thinking anywhere would be great. Uh, we wanted to pick the flattest uh, surface we can find, no rocks preferably, um, you know, obviously on the side that is closer to Earth. Um, so there was not really a preferred landing site. But what we wanted to do was to have some extra value. Like what kind of, we, our main payload, by the way, was uh, at the time was cameras and we later added magnetometer to measure the magnetic field of the moon. Um, and at the time, we wanted to kind of see what added value can we do by picking a landing site that is interesting scientifically. So we reached out to Weizmann Institute, that's a very known university in Israel, and we got one of the professors there, Oded Aharonson, to kind of spearhead the science part of, of that mission. And uh, he basically were looking into different landing sites. And interestingly, uh, in the very beginning, you know, you have all those landing sites, you need to go through a lot of data. And uh, here we got actually kids involved. So there were kids that uh, their their high school uh, project was to kind of filter out and come up with a few landing sites that they picked. And, you know, uh, there's a kid somewhere that uh, said the Bereshit is in that spot right now on the moon because I said so. So uh, I think that's a great <laughs> opportunity for, for, uh, for kids to pursue uh, sciences as well. That's really nice. You started in 2011. Was there a year you planned your, your landing to happen? Like, was it 2015? Because like a lot of the other competitors, I think they announced a launch date and then also a landing date like 10 times. It was always one, next year we're going to land, next year we're going to land, and this for the last 10 years in a row. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's an interesting part of the Google and our XPRIZE is that they forced a timeline. They said, we want everybody to uh, get to the moon by this date. And it was always next year or two years from now. And uh, I think we we actually went with the same approach of having two years. I think we set up Space SpaceAL at late 2010 and we were thinking about launching in 2012. That obviously did not happen. Um, but uh, eventually we, we did get to launch it and I think it was worth the wait, you know, uh, seeing like the impact that it did uh, on on children and the way that they perceived science. And um, that, that was a true, true achievement. And, you know, it also got a lot of uh, Israelis uh, out of bed and three in the morning to, to watch the launch and to cheer the spaceship as it was going through its trajectory. A lot of my friends and myself, we also watched it. So it was really cool. When did you book the rocket finally? The Google Lunar X Prize competition was open, I think, for five years before we joined. Um, and uh, we kind of joined at the last 15 minutes where the registration was open. Um, so we, we kind of, in the last minute, struggled in and, and got in. I think that we were the last competitor to actually uh, register for the competition. And uh, so we were the last participants and we moved from being the last one to being the first one when we were the first team to actually that bought a launch contract. And I'm a little blanking out on the date. I think it was 2015 um, where uh, Google actually announced that they verified our launch contract and we were the first one to actually uh, purchase it. 
Uh, I know other teams, uh, you know, were were announcing that they did, but I think that we were the only ones that actually put down the money that is was required, or enough of it that uh, yeah. the uh, uh, competition thought. And you know, all of that was thanks to an effort um, that uh, we we got a professional CEO at the time and uh, Iran. Uh, and uh, he actually made it happen. And, and, you know, without without that professional help, we will not be here. That's a good transition into one of uh, Daniel's and my favorite question, because to build something which yeah even can go to space or even further than just Earth orbit, how was your team structured to accomplish this incredible thing? You mentioned that you had a professional CEO. Uh, we know that you work with other companies, right? Because you had, a, I think, from an engineering perspective, quite small team, right? You, you had 100 volunteers, which helped also with outreach and a lot of other things. Uh, and there, there are teams which have been part of the Google Lunar Express, which produced like videos of huge, uh, huge halls filled with engineers or people working on their spacecraft. But maybe you can tell us a little bit about the top level structure of the team. So with what kind of subcontractors you have worked with, but then also like how your team internally was organized to really manage all these stakeholders and manage fundraising and, and all these small pieces which are necessary to make such a mission a success so i can i can speak a few days about that um <laughs> but i can tell you just uh generally speaking so space il was the main organization that actually made a spaceship we partnered with iai and they took a lot of the work packages and did it in-house they have a really big team of experts the integration of the spaceship into from parts to a working spacecraft was done in their facilities, in their clean rooms. Testing was done in their facilities. They have a lot of experience. They know how to build a satellite, and now they know how to build a mission to the moon. Uh, so they were a very big integral part of making this uh, mission a reality. In Space IL, we had some of the key engineering aspects, of primarily the system engineering, but also some of the work packages, uh, controls, and, uh, and others that were done internally. So it was a, jo a truly joint effort. We between IAI and Space IL, we were kind of the new kids in town, move fast and break things kind of uh, kind of mentality. And, and I know at the time it was uh, difficult because IAI, uh, you know, is a very organized organization. They know how to build a satellite and they have their method, which works, and they have 100% success in space. So they are actually very, very good in making reliable satellites that work. And we were trying to kind of getting a little more, you know, agile kind of way to get in. Uh, but I think it ended up working pretty well. So I think that collaboration actually was very fruitful for both of us. And it did get to the moon. How big was your core engineering team uh, internally? It wasn't very big. Uh, there, we have a picture of everybody sitting in one room. I can tell you, uh, we tried to get there uh, quickly and on budget. So that, that uh, obviously dictated some things. But, uh, you know, uh, these are very, very good really talented engineers uh, actually the, one of the best that I got to work with and they were able to uh, facilitate and solve problems we we had uh, our chief system engineer Alex was uh, uh, really a one-of-a-kind kind of guy I, I you know working as a young engineer in the same company I, I heard stories about him and he really carried the team and made a big impact We had Yoav, also a really talented system engineer, and, and many, many others. And it's just incredible. I mean, if you just think about it, you had all in one room, 
Also the, the 100 million budget sounds like a lot of money, but for a mission to the moon, it's not that much. And also for the listeners, it's incredible because you were the fourth nation actually attempting a soft landing on the moon after Soviet Union, United States and China. So it's just just incredible. And I think it's also showing you are the role model for the really deep space missions and the new space approach. Also, if you think about just eight years after founding, so it's, it's really incredible. Yeah, you already mentioned that your, one of your co-founder, his key responsibility was bringing out the message or spreading the message about Space IL. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about like what your personal role was within the organization. Yeah, so my two co-founders, we didn't have an aerospace background. So it was my job to, to make the initial designs and the initial decisions of how to make that mission work. You know, one of the first things that I looked into is, uh, can we make the mission a ride share mission? So basically, if you classically, if you want to get to space, you buy a rocket, uh, you pay uh, 60 or 100 million dollars or 150 million dollars, depending on the rocket, and you can get to space. And obviously, that's way above our budget. So what we plan to do is ride sharing, which is basically the Uber of space flight. You team up with another passenger and you both go to both go to other space. And the problem with doing that is that, you know, when you take an Uber pool, you need to make sure that both passengers want to get roughly to the same spot. Otherwise, you don't want to partner someone that's going north with someone that's going south. Right. It doesn't work that way. Uh, but if you think about it at the time, uh, the moon was not very interesting. So not right now, everybody has plans to go back to the moon. But but uh, eight years ago, uh, nobody thought about that. The moon was pretty much uh, uh, left there. And uh, so we couldn't get a passenger or co-passenger that wants to get actually to the moon. So uh, the idea was to use a ride share with a satellite that goes to an Earth orbit. But if you think about it, it's not really trivial because in space, everything moves. Right, the moon moves around the Earth, the spaceship moves around the Earth as well, and you need to time everything and make sure that they capture together uh, on the surface of the moon. And that is um, that is a big problem. And, and one of the things that we did was to design an orbit. I say we, I actually had nothing to do with it. We had people that were really talented that, uh, that actually did the calculations. But what the idea was to get to the moon the orbit that goes around the Earth that doesn't impose too many constraints on the co-passenger, uh, which was a new design. And by the way, at the beginning, there were many experts, including one from NASA, that said that it would never work. And <laughs> yet, uh, yet here we are. So I think convincing people was a key part of it. Yariv, my other co-founder, was working very hard to get fundraising for this mission and to uh, be able to get the necessary support. And we got, you know, Many philanthropists, you know, including the, the Edelson family that, that got to see the spaceship and kind of fell in love with it. And they were being main support of it. And we also got uh, very small donations. So one of the key part of this mission was that kids could give their five dollars uh, and support the mission. And I think that was really important because they get to look at it and follow it. And also, you know, the engineers knew that we were taking donations from kids. And, you know, if you waste a bunch of a couple of millions of a big philanthropist you don't feel as guilty but if you took all the money of a five-year-old you know you better get to the moon and i think that's uh, that was a key motivator as well this is really like i think super important i mean at some point and probably early on it's 
great to have like a core team of founders which have like different uh, complementary skill sets which we can then bring such a mission forward so maybe maybe funding that's super important and i know like a lot of missions the google lunar x prize and a lot of space missions in general really stop uh, because of uh, yeah a lack of funding uh, you have been able to to yeah accumulate the 100 million euros uh, dollars in funding which daniel mentioned before this so it mostly came from philanthropists is that correct yeah, so it's uh, mostly privately funded. The government had uh, a part of it, but it was uh, we were trying to follow the Google and our Prize guidelines of having less than 10% of the funding coming from the government. So the vast majority, more than 90%, came from private philanthropists that saw this and the, the thing that it can do for kids and the thing that it can uh, promote science uh, in Israel. And this is why they, they wanted to give uh, money to this. And I would say one thing about funding is if you're starting uh, an organization or a company, um, you know, you better do this uh, in, with a moonshot, with a ridiculous claim, because then people either get it right away and they want to support it or not interested. But you're not spending a lot of time talking to people that maybe, maybe later, you know, uh, you don't you don't spend a lot of time on on trying to convince people because this is literally a moonshot. You either believe in it or you don't interesting and also strategically very clever way of doing things by uh, starting a nonprofit with also this great goal to support education right or scientific education and i think this this is maybe something why it was sometimes harder for other competitors of this competition to raise funds from private individuals which like obviously would would support a, a company uh, only if if they would also get a stake in the company and this then would comes with uh, its own problems sometimes. Exactly. That's also the direction I wanted to ask um, because um, other competitors uh, trying to contact the typical venture capitalist with a great business case for the moon. Um, and uh, we, we also had another podcast um, about this topic, is their business case for moon or Mars. Uh, but you didn't have this ambition, right? You have another vision for your mission. Did you get inbound from venture capitalists? So I, I do want to say one thing. At the time, it wasn't clear what was the right thing to do, right? I think that that's a key part because only in hindsight, you see it and said, oh, this was a good decision. But when we were making the decision, it was really unclear if that would work. Would that be detriment or that would be actually beneficiary of what we did, what we wanted to do? It turned out to be the right decision. So we also iterated on it. We wanted to understand what specifically type of organization we want to make. Uh, so it's not a one decision that made it all. It was more like iterative uh, process. We did not get funding from venture capitalists because of the problem of not being able to give out shares. So this is something that we had to say, no, we're not giving shares, we're not a, we're not a profit. I don't know if we were to start today, I'm not sure we needed to revise that decision because right now there's a lot more of commercial interest in going to the moon and there's a lot more funding that goes in there. But at the time, uh, there was really nothing. There was just one Chinese mission and the Google Lunar X Prize, and that was everything that was set foot to go to moon. It's true. In hindsight, a lot of things appear to be very strategic, although they have been maybe more tactical or they have been just guesswork. Um, but, but still, it's, it's really incredible. So you already told us what your contribution to the mission was and how you were involved in a team. So really from an engineering perspective, maybe you could walk us a little bit through the different design phases of the lander. 
Okay, so I can tell you that the main contributor to the size and the mass of the spacecraft is the propulsion system. And the main reason for that is, again, the rocket equation is exponential. So for every one kilo of hardware that sits on the moon, you need to take the fuel to get it almost to there. And then you need to take the fuel to take that extra. And, and, and so it's exponential. So a key part of the mission, and this is my main tip to anyone that wants to get to the moon today, is you need to make sure that you have your propulsion system scaled correctly. So you need to understand what is the mass of the spacecraft as a whole, namely the structure, the payload, whatever it is that you want to do on the moon, your science experiments, and then that will determine your propulsion system according to how much fuel you need to get that mass to the surface of the moon. And the propulsion system is the key aspect that dictates everything about the mission. So uh, because of most of the volume of the spacecraft is fuel tanks, and so you know it detects the, the volume and it detects the, the mass and what kind of launch you can get. I think that's that's a key key aspect of it. And and in the early days, we were kind of working to some extent around the, the rocket equation. So the rocket equation has like how much velocity do you need, how much energy do you need. Uh, so you, for that, you need to design the orbit, and you need to understand like how much delta v is called, how much energy you need to get to the surface of the moon, and that's through orbital design. You need to work uh, with the propulsion system, with the structure, and then you can get a rough idea of how the mission would look like. And at that point, I recommend, you know, getting a little more formal in the way that you define the mission itself, uh, having some sort of technical budgets like energy budget, like power budget, having some requirements is a good idea. And, and this is how you basically get started. Obviously, as uh, the design matures, you need a lot more engineers to actually do the, the finalize and final alignment uh, of those designs. Uh, and you need to have good system engineer that can actually find all the gaps in between the systems and, and glue them together. So that's the very early design phases. After that, you kind of need to have the experts in the room flashing out what this, this system means. You know, even for a propulsion system, you need to make sure that you have the right pressure in every moment, in every in every valve, and the valve can work correctly. And you need to make sure that they have the right voltage. So uh, it, it, the design becomes much more. Uh, detailed as you go along, but there's no point in specifying the voltage on every valve when you don't know how much fuel you need, right? <laughs> so you kind of need to work your way uh, um, uh, from that way inward. So that was very interesting, I think, especially seeing like a, another competitor from the Google Lunar Express from inside. I think there there are a lot of learnings. If if I would now start a moon mission, I have no plans. <laughs> Yet, but you should. You should actually. Yeah, yeah actually, Sven, Sven and I also um, have a hardware background uh, for, for space, and we, we we started a software company. But maybe in the future, and, and we we are pretty young, right? So you don't know what will happen in the next forty years. And I can tell you that the big challenge here was to convince people that it's possible. A lot of people were thinking that, oh, it's only things that NASA can do and cost billions yeah. of dollars. But convincing them that, you know, it's actually very feasible and now is the right time to do this because we have all this new technology. You know, we were the first person ever to get 3D, 3D printed parts to the surface of the moon. 3D printing was not available to Apollo landers, right? So yeah. that, that's yeah. a key part of that. Yeah. You also use a lot of commercial off-the-shelf parts. Yeah, so that that was uh, that was a key part of it. Um, so commercial off the shelf, uh, the CubeSat community actually contributed a lot of the commercial off the shelf uh, designs. Uh, we were, for example, the main computer uh, that we used was uh, a Leon three uh, processor that was manufactured by uh, Ramon Chips. That's another Israeli company, 
And that processor is pretty standard and it's really, uh, you know, really worked with the miniaturization in the new space. And they, they are very reliable and we were enjoying to work with them. Uh, we tried to use commercial off the shelf as much, as much as we could. Again, in the beginning, it was CubeSat oriented, but we ended up uh, deviating away from that in towards more professional. Yeah, and it's 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 great. Uh, I mean, for first company to land three uh, D printed stuff on the moon. Uh, this Monday there was the the big uh, rocket factory opening in Munich from ESA Aerospace, where Sven and I were invited, and it was also very impressive how many parts they want to three um, D print actually, uh, and also what kind of machinery they already have there. So it's I think it's uh, for the space industry. Uh, this also has a really 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 big impact because you can just build the systems in a different way, right? Um, and building such a complex systems may come with some downsides or some really frustrating moments. So was there any day in those um, eight years until you, you launched the rocket or maybe maybe nine years, let's say 10, where you wanted to stop because you were so frustrated because something didn't work or funding was, uh, was tough? Well, I cannot speak for everyone, but for me, it was at least once a week. Like when you're like, oh, what am I doing this? It's, uh, it's really hard. And I think here I want to circle back to the kids because we thought in the beginning that uh, we would do something nice for the kids. We would talk about space and inspire them. But it turns out it actually works both ways. So when you go and, and we encourage and myself and my partners and the other engineering in the team, uh, we were working, we were talking to schools. It wasn't just, uh, there was no separation. Oh, you guys work on the satellite. We, we talked to the schools. We tried to involve everybody that wanted into uh, doing that. So it was in those moments where you're, you know, you had a bad day and you're like, think to yourself, oh, why am I doing that? And then you go and you speak to school kids and you see their eyes open up and they're like, they, they look at you like you're an astronaut, right? And <laughs> they think, oh yeah, that's, you, you have the coolest job in the world. And, and, and I think it's a, it's a great reminder of why we do what we do, right? Because getting to the moon is nice and it's obviously awesome and it's a great experience and highly recommended to do that to anyone who's listening. But also there are really tough days. And when you talk to kids and you see their eyes light up, this is what you know why you do this. And I think that's a key part of it. Really, really inspirational. Then I talked about the tough days of Space IL. From our perspective, your day when you when you reached the moon was a huge success, right? Uh, but not everything worked accordingly to plan. Um, maybe you can describe the the, the last few hours uh, of your of your first first mission to the moon. <laughs> yeah. So. And the final orbits, uh, the spacecraft was uh, very low altitude from the, from the moon. When it took pictures of the surface, you can see mountain ranges coming up. So we were so close to the surface of, of the moon that you can actually see the mountains spike up. And there was a little joke there that if you overshoot the engines by a little bit, you're, you're going to hit it. So it was a very precise maneuver to get the spaceship right in the right moment uh, of that. And there was obviously a lot of excitement about this mission actually coming to the surface. The joke was that, by the way, the spaceship was so close to the moon that it was actually closer than the distance between the bar that we started Space IL and where they actually assembled it, um, which is the next TV, right? So that was, that was that close to the surface of the moon. At that point, the mission has been running for quite a few weeks, uh, I think almost two months at that time. You know how kids, some kids are born troublemakers? Uh, so that spaceship was certainly a troublemaker because from the very beginning of the mission, nothing worked like it should be, right? It's, it's, we had a lot of problems and a lot of fixes. 
and I can tell you all about like a maneuver that we had to do to get to the surface of the moon and 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 it didn't work and we had to work through a lot of a lot of problems and you know here uh, the, the CEO Ido uh, was really a tremendous person bringing everybody together and making sure that um, we can actually get and do this mission right so we were kind of uh, in a way hopeful that we will work because we had to fix so many things along the way and at that point you know the spaceship was running uh, a lot of on you know patches and duct tape and but it was working right it was it was on the way to the surface of the moon so they did a final maneuver and we all sat down and there was a little bit of a, of a get together and we got all the people from all the years to you know to post it and and then we we sat down and I, you know i went with my wife and uh we sat down in the control room and there's a uh, the control room has a seating area and it has a big glass window. And then there is the, on the other side are the controllers. And, uh, you know, I was standing, you know, you know, uh, hands on the glass, like a kid looking into the control rooms and seeing all the professionals uh, doing their, their work there. So we were really excited and really hopeful that this will work. The first couple of minutes here, there were, were went spectacular. So when you get to the surface of the moon, you're traveling at this point uh, at about two kilometers per second. So this is seven times the speed of sound or so. So it's really, really, really fast. And you need to slow down to zero and you have less than a quarter of an hour to do so. And that's a hell of a break. <laughs> you need to get from all the way from orbit to standing on the surface of the moon. And the moon doesn't have an atmosphere, so you have to come down on rockets. You cannot use parachutes, right? It won't work because you don't have an atmosphere. Airbags don't work in that speed, so you have to slow down on your rocket, and the rocket has to aim precisely. So this is where why this mission is called rocket science, right? Because you have to make it really precise, and you need to work spectacularly. And you know the mission started, the engines were lit, and the first couple of minutes of the landing went spectacularly by the book. And it was absolutely beautiful to see that. We got telemetry, the data from the spacecraft, and it all showed like the mission is going well. And we did the obvious thing. And and because we were talking to kids, we took a selfie and the selfie was transmitted from the from the spacecraft to Earth. And we could see we could see the selfie of the lander with the legs opened up, ready to to deploy uh, on the surface of the moon. And you know, we, we traveled quarter of a million miles to the moon, like 10 miles from the surface, we got a, a warning message uh, that one of the components was malfunctioning. And we had a redundant component at that point, and we had to make a decision, do we want to switch to the redundant or do we want to keep it as it is to continue with both the redundant and the malfunction component, or we do want to restart the malfunction component and have both of them. And we had to make a call and the engineers there, they were thinking very hard about what to do and they decided to, to do the call of restarting it. Unfortunately, that cascades to a series of events that switched off the engine and basically the spacecraft got restarted. And I'm saying unfortunately, but at the time it wasn't clear that this would happen, right? Because you gotta remember, we had to patch the mission and, and we had to kind of make things work. So a lot of things that the team has practiced on operating the mission they were no longer relevant because of all the changes that had to be made along the way. So, you know, it's really hard to, in the moment of time, to, to think, to remember, the, was it change? Is it still the same? How is it still working? Unfortunately, we, we lost communication with the spacecraft, and a couple of seconds later, it, it actually hit the surface of the moon uh, way too fast. 
Um, and NASA took a, a picture of the before and after, so you can actually see the heat crater there. I, it was at a time I was really worried about what kids would look at this, um, because again, we pumped them all up to get to the moon and, and, and volunteers working school to school and kids were really excited about it. But I'll be honest, uh, it was really it was really charming to see it because kids uh, send us letters and Facebook posts saying, you know, don't worry about it. You know, here I, I gathered some money for a new bike, but I'd much rather you send another spaceship and they send us some. It was it was really it was really warming to see how space, how the kids were touched by this and how they uh, they looked at it. And, and you know, the truth is, one of them is going to be able to to go back there. You know, well, we, we put a time capsule inside a spacecraft. We took some pictures and drawings and it's now on the surface of the moon. And I really hope that one of those kids can get it back for me because I have something important there. Yeah. Now, now thinking about you made it uh, to the moon. You said in too many pieces, but you made it. Uh, you have a nonprofit. You reached your your mission somehow. You could now say that you stop, but you don't stop, right? So there is a plan. There was a plan after this, which you're right now working on. Yeah. Yeah. So we're working to put another plan together to get it back to the moon. This time in one piece, hopefully. Uh, it's still in the making, and we're trying to figure out how we want to do it and what do we want to do there. So I cannot speak a lot about that. But, you know, things don't usually work the first time around. You have to try again. And I think that's certainly a, an example for that. And and this is really great to hear because we have learned so much from this podcast already. And, and I think what your goal was to inspire the next generation out there to go into science and, and change the world is a great thing. And we wish you really the best of luck uh, for the next mission. Fingers are crossed. And we are we also believe there's a great business case for going to the moon now since everyone is looking to the moon everyone wants to go there and so we want to thank you very much for the time thank you very much for the insights you've shared with us and all the best and your team for the next steps so that's it this was another episode of the new space vision podcast and it won't be the last we have already lined up a few new interesting inspiring guests Stay tuned and track our activity on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and of course on our website newspacevision.com. If you enjoyed this episode, it would be great if you support us by forwarding this podcast to one other person in your network that might enjoy it as well or by sharing or retweeting the podcast post on your social media profile. If you have any feedback or ideas who we should talk to in one of our upcoming episodes, feel free to message us on our social media outlets or email our podcast organizer nina at newspace.vision. Thank you very much for listening to the podcast.